Um, for the Jewish people throughout their history, they were continuously looking forward to the fulfillment of God's promise to them that he would send a Messiah. And uh, throughout their history, we, we saw, or they saw, uh, many different types of messiahs, if you will, uh, kind of come and go. Whenever somebody, a powerful leader, would come on the scene for the Jewish people, and they were suggesting that they would lead God's people and deliver God's people, uh, people begin to get excited, and be, they begin to accept them with really great enthusiasm, thinking that that person might be, indeed, the true fulfillment of God's promises, from all those promises for all those many, many years. But of course, we know how they all ended, right? Uh, everybody began to get excited about them, enthusiasm began to build, and then all of a sudden, before you knew it, the person died, and there went the dream, and there went the movement, and they were crushed, and they were spent waiting for another one to come, expecting for the Messiah to come. Well, you remember, if you know your Bibles, you remember that Jesus, when he came on the scene, uh, he too was kind of accepted with some enthusiasm, at least in the beginning when he first showed up. And the multitude seemed to gravitate around him and think that he was great and wonderful. But we know what happened there, don't we? Um, he too ended up uh, dying. Do you remember that? Yes, Jesus died. But what's interesting is something different happened at Jesus' death compared to all the other deaths of those that came before him. When he died, it wasn't the end of a movement. It was the beginning of a movement, a great movement, a movement that would, would, would spread throughout the entire known world. And so what was the difference between Jesus and all those who had come before him? Well, there was many differences, but let me just give you one for this morning since it is Easter. Um, he was the only one of all of them who rose from the dead. The only one who rose from the grave, from the dead. Now, look, we need to understand something. If you're around the religiosity culture and we're brought up in church culture, when we talk about the resurrection, we just kind of throw it out there, right? Oh, yeah, this, yeah, oh, yeah, of course, Jesus rose from the dead, right? Without us really even realizing exactly what it is that we're saying. Uh, some of us, uh, when we say that, um, we're moved to our hearts, right? We hear about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and there's great affections that begin to build in our hearts and our minds because of what Christ did for us. Uh, still, there are others, and I realize that, that there are even some who are here, when they hear about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and really what they're thinking is, what a ridiculous concept. I mean, honestly, somebody coming back to life that was in the grave for three days, uh, I don't think so. Now, I know that there's different, we're, we're all in different places there. There's probably a few groups of people that rest in each one of those groups that I just kind of explained. Uh, so what I want to do is I want to be very simple about this morning service. I want to do two things. Uh, the first thing I want to do is looking at uh, Mark chapter 16 is I just kind of want to unpack that just a little bit. And what I want to do is I want to give you three reasons why believers in Jesus Christ, why Christians are confident that Jesus indeed did rise from from the dead, all right? Then what we're going to do is we're going to talk about what that confidence does for us. The fact that we're confident that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, therefore, those who place their faith in Christ Jesus are confident in a couple truths that I'm going to share with you at the end. Okay, you guys following me? All right, so the first thing we're going to do is this. We are confident. We're going to look at why we are confident that Jesus rose from the dead. We're confident because of three things. Number one, we're confident because of the empty tomb, because of the empty tomb. Now, look at verse 1 with me, if you would. Chapter 16 and verse 1, 
The Bible says when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Now, remember something. Jesus died on Friday. He died on Friday, and then Friday afternoon, late afternoon, is when they actually declared and verified, the Roman soldiers, that Jesus was indeed dead. Now, this is only just a couple hours before the Sabbath was to begin. Now, what does that mean? It means that those that were going to take care of Jesus' body and prepare it for burial had a very short period of time to make sure that they could get him ready for that particular time. So we know this story by the other Gospels. There's a man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea, who was a part of the Sanhedrin, the leadership, the Jewish leadership, that came and requested the body of Jesus Christ, along with those women who were kind of listed here, some of those that were listed here in verse 1. And they asked for the body, and very quickly they began to do everything they could to prepare Jesus' body, to get it ready, and then they put it in the tomb before the Sabbath, all right? But they couldn't complete the work. There just wasn't enough time. So when the Sabbath was over, which ended on that evening of that Saturday, they were ready the very next day. The first opportunity they got, they were going to come back to the tomb and finish what it was that they had begun, the work that they had begun. So the first opportunity they were going to have is the morning on that Sunday, that early Sunday morning as the sun began to rise. They were already out prepared with all the different uh, spices and wraps and everything they needed to go and to be able to finish the task that they had given. But as they're going... Their minds are kind of swarming, right? They're, they're thinking over this, and they're thinking, you know what? There are some obstacles that are standing between us and doing what we want to accomplish. And what were some of those obstacles? Well, one was the stone. There was a huge stone that had been rolled in front of the tomb. The tombs in that day, they weren't buried under the ground. They were buried in tombs. Some of them were natural tombs. Some of them were carved out of rock. But the way that they would seal them or close them up is there would be a huge circular stone that would rest kind of in a, in, in a track, if you will, that was raised up above the entrance of the tomb. Once the body went in the tomb, then they would release kind of a lever. They would take that lever out, and it would roll down into place and fit kind of like in a little, like, like in a little um, hole where it was almost impossible to be able to get that stone out again, right? I mean, you don't want folks, you know, you dying and folks like, hey, I want to take another look and, you know, whipping your casket open and looking at you, right? So this was a huge, at verse 4, says a very heavy, heavy stone that they placed there. So that's their first concern. The second concern that they have is the seal that's on the stone. We read this in the other parallel accounts. We find out that that big stone that was there was also sealed by the Roman officials. And it was sealed either with wax or with some kind of like mortar or some kind of clay. And it was hardened. Now, the purpose of that was to let everybody know that this was the property basically of Rome, that they had sealed this. And if you were to come, anybody who would come and break that seal would be punishable of death, all right? So they didn't want this thing being opened at all. And so when they're thinking, hey, we need to finish this, but if we, open, if we could even move it, if we break that seal, we too could find the same exact death as Jesus did. Now, there was a third thing that was a real challenge for them on that day, and, and that ultimately was the soldiers that were stationed outside of that tomb. The religious leaders, as you know, were not a big fan of Jesus. You guys remember this, right? Not a big fan of Jesus. And they had heard throughout Jesus' ministry constant, constantly Jesus saying, I'm going to die, and in three days, I'm going to rise again. 
all right, on that third day. Well, they didn't really believe Jesus, but they didn't want to take any chances, all right? And so they didn't either want him to resurrect, nor did they want any of his disciples to go open up the tomb, steal the body, and then say, guess what? He's risen from the dead. And so they didn't want any of this to be able to happen. So they, they put these soldiers outside of that tomb. Now, notice what happens in verse 4. They're worried about all these things. And as they come in verse 4, it says, And looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled away. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. So notice this. They're worried about all these things. How are they going to get to Jesus? They get there. The stone is rolled away. The seal has already been broken. And there's not a soldier in sight. But guess what else is not there? Jesus, right? You have to love the angel when the angel says, Do not be afraid. (laughs) All right. I would be afraid, right? There's an angel in there, right? And you're like, okay, I'll try. I'll do my best. And he's like, Jesus is not here. He's risen, from the, he's risen from the grave. Here's what I want you to understand just very quickly, logically. The religious leaders in Rome did everything they possibly could to secure the fact, everything humanly possible to make sure that Jesus stayed inside that tomb. They wanted to make sure that his body would not be stolen. If somehow he was still alive, he was going to stay in that tomb. But here's the deal. They get there. He's not there. Why? He rose from the dead. That's why. It's the first reason why we're confident that he rose from the grave. The second reason that we're confident that he rose from the grave is because of the numerous eyewitnesses. Now, let me draw your attention to verse 1 again. Look back there and look at that list of names. Did you notice this? Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, in Salome, right? And he's listing all these names. Now, if you look up the verse before that, the very end of verse 15, he gives some of those names again and a couple others. He says, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph. Now, look over to chapter 15 just for a moment and look at verse 40 again. He mentions some of those names again, Mary Magdalene and some new, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and Joseph and Salome, all right? So, My question for you is, why is he going into all these detail, specifically given these names within there? Why not say, hey, man, there's a bunch of women that went there to that day. That might seem kind of like sexist. (laughs) Maybe that's why he didn't do it. But I think there's another reason why he's giving their specific names. He's giving what we call a first century footnote, all right? When you're in school and you write a paper, and and this this is a hard thing to learn sometimes, you can't just write whatever you want on the paper. If you're going to bring any kind of authority to your writing, you have to cite another expert, somebody with their PhD, about what it is that you're writing about, and you give this little footnote. Well, guess what? He's footnoting this. He realizes, he realizes at this particular time that, guess what? Nobody, and a lot of, or a lot of people, are not going to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. You know why? Because it was as unbelievable then as it is to you and I today. Don't think that the people in the first century were just a bunch of dummies and a bunch of mystics that's sitting back going, oh yeah, there's people flying everywhere, man, coming back to life everywhere. That's not how they were. It was just as unbelievable then as it is for us today. So you know why he puts this in there? He says, I know that when people read this, they're not going to believe it. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give the specific names of the people that saw this with their own eyes and went through this so that if you've got a question and you doubt me that what I'm writing, that you, the first century people again, can actually go and talk to them. Talk to Mary Magdalene. Talk to these different Marys, right? And that they can hear from their mouth that guess what? This stuff actually did happen. Now, there's an amazing thing about this whole thing. 
kind of a twist. And the idea is, is this, is that during that day, ladies, we don't view you this way today. You need to understand that. But then you weren't really worth a whole lot, all right, in the first century. Let me, let me just break it to you, which is okay because you don't live then. But you just really weren't looked at as really all that great. In fact, a woman's word meant absolutely nothing. She could not testify in a court of law. If she did, the case was basically thrown out because they believed that a woman was far too fickle to keep her mind straight enough to be able to give the actual truth. Now, I'm just telling you what they thought, all right? That's not what I think at all, all right? And so here's what's interesting. Mark writing something, wanting you and I to believe it for his first, (coughs) excuse me, for his first witnesses supplies women who aren't even accepted during that day as viable witnesses. Do you see this? Here's the point. The point is, if he's trying to make all this up, if he's just trying to make the whole thing up, then why don't in the world that you just make up a bunch of guys' names that nobody can, can substantiate and give guys' names so that it's at least a little bit more believable? If you have women being your primary witnesses, who's gonna begin to believe that in the first place, right? The reason that he records those names is not only for you to be able to go to them, for that, the, that first century to be able to go to them and ask them face-to-face as eyewitnesses, but he was also doing it because it's exactly how it happened. He did it because Jesus truly did rise from the grave. And so what we find is there's two reasons why we're confident. First of all, the empty tomb. Secondly, the, the, the numerous eyewitnesses. And there's a third thing, a long-term impact on the lives of Jesus' followers. Let me add this last thing. Guys, even if you read in the word of God, you find out that his appearances and witnesses, it wasn't just these women that saw him. The Bible says that there were seven distinct times for sure that were recorded that people saw the, the resurrected Jesus with their own eyes over, over 40 days uh, uh, he, he appeared at least seven times and 500 people witnessed the resurrected Jesus Christ. You got that? Now, here's the third thing, is the long-term impact of the lives of Jesus' followers. Now, look at verse seven, if you will. <clears throat> there it says this. Um, the angel says to, the, to these women, he says, go, so, but go and tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you, right? And they, and they said, and, and, and they went out and they fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone who, uh, uh, for they were afraid. Now get this. Who was it that showed up that first morning? It was women. All right. Where were the men? Right. Right, ladies? I mean, we could probably have a little bit of fun with this, right? So here are the women. They come out. The men, he says, go to the men and tell them. Why? Because they are hiding. All right. Brave women coming. All right. Uh, uh, um, brave, brave, unbrave men, uh, fearful men hiding. They are hiding behind locked door, okay, because they're afraid that the same thing that happened to Jesus very well might happen to them, that m- they might be implicated as well. They may come to them and they might be crucified. So they are scared. Now, the women are like, hey, throw caution to the wind. That's Jesus. We're going to be there. Men hiding. All right, you guys got this, right? Now, you would think that at least one of the guys would have shown up. Okay, it wasn't like Jesus didn't constantly say throughout all the gospels and here in Mark, in chapter eight and chapter nine and chapter 10, he goes very clearly, I'm gonna die. And on the third day, I'm gonna come back to life. Okay, so in the beginning, he's kind of teaching that in parables. He says, I'll give you a sign. It's like the sign of, uh, of uh, Jonah who was in the belly of the fish for three days. Then he came back. He goes, I'll give you that sign. That's the sign. Finally, he realizes they're not getting it. And so he's like, hey guys, Three, I will die three days in tomb, third day, come back to life, right? 
they just don't get it, all right? The women get it. Men don't. We're a little bit hard-headed. But at this particular point, what do they do? You would think that at least one of them would say, hey, guys, do you remember he did say on the third day he's going to rise from the dead, right? You guys remember that? Maybe one of us should at least go down there and just kind of at least check it out just to see if it's ultimately true, right? Well, none of them go. Why? Because they're scared. They're scared. Now, listen, it's easy to pick fun of the disciples, but stop and think about something for a minute. Their lives were literally on the line. They were fearful because their lives would be taken. You and I are fearful even to share or open up our mouths to share the gospel with somebody because oftentimes we're afraid that they may call us a Jesus freak, all right? So let's put this in its appropriate context, all right? So they are afraid, they are hiding. And I love this, what the angel says. He says, the disciples and Peter. There was poor Peter. Peter was not only afraid after the fact, after the fact he was afraid during it, right? When Jesus was arrested, he's kind of following behind, and people are like, hey, you were with him. He's like, no, I wasn't with him. That was some other guy, right? That was some other guy that looks exactly like me and speaks exactly like me. And then again, hey, you were with him. No, I wasn't with him. Third time, you were with him? I'm telling you, I swear that I was not with that man. I don't know him. I have nothing to do with that guy, right? So he was afraid both coming and going. So they tell them to be able to go to this, but here's what's crazy. All this fear, a fear of penalty, being wrapped up with Jesus, being tormented, going in jail, uh, being crucified, they're afraid of it. But something radically happens between this point and just a couple weeks later. <clears throat> just a short period of time later in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, what we find is we find the same group of scaredy cats going to the same city that they were hiding from, the same Jewish leaders that they were scared of, and all of a sudden, <clears throat> they are preaching out loud in the cities to the very ones, and they are sticking it to these Jewish leaders. They're sitting there going, the Christ who you crucified and put on the cross, he was the true Messiah. He was the promised one to come. He goes, you killed him, all right? And what they begin to do is through the book of Acts, we just see them becoming more and more and more bold. In fact, they're really not ultimately afraid of even going to prison. They go to prison. They end up being beaten because of their faith. Eventually, all of, almost all of them, at least 10 out of the 12 most likely, die for their faith, re, re, refusing to relent from their belief that Jesus Christ had risen from the grave. Are you guys catching this? What in the world could have possibly happened between hiding and professing Christ in such a bold way? One thing, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Listen, you will lie and lie and lie, but you're not gonna give up your life for a lie. But almost every single one of them did that and required their life because why? Because they saw the resurrected Jesus. It made it all worthwhile and real to them. You got that? Now, here's the question for us. That's how we believe and why we are confident that Jesus rose from the dead. There's a lot of other truths, historical truths that we could add to that. But very simply, the empty tomb, the numerous eyewitnesses, the long-term impact on the lives of Jesus' followers. But now, how do we kind of unpack that? Well, let me do that for you just for a couple minutes. Because we are confident that Jesus rose from the dead, we are confident in three things. As believers, we are confident that our position has changed. Our position has changed. Now, what in the world does that mean? Well, you know, a lot of people have all different kinds of ideas about who Jesus is. Have you ever asked somebody, who do you say that Jesus is? It's a good question. Ask your parents or ask your, your children, or who do you say that Jesus is? And, and you'll get all kinds of different ideas. You know, some people think Jesus was merely a rebel. He was a troublemaker. He came and really what happened is he died on that cross and it was his own fault because of, he, he had it coming to him. He stirred up the people. He, he made people angry. That's how some people view him. 
Now, in the South, in our culture, okay, usually it doesn't go that extreme, right? The majority of folks in our Southern culture, Baptistic culture, what they say is this. Well, he was a good man. Jesus was a good man. He came and he taught very great and wonderful moral truths, taught some really good uh, uh, things, how we should live by and moral uh, truths that we can live by and implement in our each and everyday life. And then what happened is he died, but it was just kind of a big mix-up, man. It was just a bunch of people who didn't really quite, quite understand. He was mis- misunderstood, and so they ended up killing him, and it was just a real tragedy. It should have never happened. It, it just didn't go according to plan. But then, of course, that there are those that understand that that's not how the Bible demonstrates Jesus' coming. The Bible, in fact, teaches that neither one of those things are true. Jesus Christ didn't come, listen, Jesus Christ didn't come in the form of a man, be born of a virgin, live a perfect life on this, uh, on this, uh, on this earth, and for three years to just teach you simple principles, moral principles about how you and I can appear to be better people. That's ridiculous. That's not what he did. And Jesus Christ didn't just end up in the cross. It wasn't just some tragedy that was, that was unforeseen. God saw it before the foundations of the earth. His plan was that his son would step out of heaven, take the form of a man, and die on that cross. What was he doing? What was he accomplishing? He was changing our position. What position was he changing? Well, we went from being an enemy of God to being a child of God through his death, burial, and his resurrection. So catch this, you say, enemy of God? What are you talking about? Well, folks, we are born enemies of God. In fact, the psalmist David says that when we're being knitted together in our, uh, in our mother's womb, we are actually inheriting a sin nature. We are born sinners, right? And moms, how many of you have noticed that sin nature even in your little children and your babies, right? I mean, they come out and they are primed and ready for lying, cheating, stealing, and whining and being self-centered. Do you guys have different kids than we had, right? Are you guys with me? I mean, they come out. I mean, they are geared for this. They are made for this. They don't have to be trained. Okay, child, there's a couple things you're going to need. You're going to need to know how to steal. All right, here's how you do it. No, they just know how to do those things and be completely self-centered. Why? Because they were born sinners. Here's the problem. The Bible says when we sin, which means that we have rebelled against God, our creator. He says the consequence in that, the outcome, the wages of sin of that is both physical and spiritual death, which means we not only die physically, but we spiritually die and we spend eternity in hell when we physically die away from, apart from God, an everlasting uh, hell, a fiery hell, a literal hell. Now, here's the deal. We sit there and go, man, that's bad. That sounds horrible. And here it is. It is. But it is. But here's something even worse. What's even worse is that every single one of us are deserving of it. And Jesus Christ would be just and right to send every single last one of us to that hell because of a rebellion against him. He's just. But you know what? Fortunately for us, he's not only just, which means he always does what is right. And he must judge sin when people rebel against him. He's also loving. Now, that is good, good news. After that bad news, I could use some good news. He is loving. The Bible says that he wishes that none should perish, not even one. That's what he says, his love. So how do we reconcile a God who is both absolutely just and a God who is absolutely and fully and completely loving with us? How do you justify or how do you, how do you bring those two things together? How do they reconcile you reconcile it through the person of Jesus Christ. When Jesus came and he died on the cross, 
It was, was the plan by God from eternity's past. He meant both God's justice because all of the sin of everyone who would be saved was poured out on the person of Jesus Christ. And when it did on that cross, the wrath of God, the righteous wrath of God was judging Jesus on that cross, but not for his sin. Here's the, here's the love. There's the justice, but here's the love. Not for his sin, but for your sin and for my sin. He became a substitute for you. He became a substitute for me. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become his righteousness. Got that? So because he took our sin and because that sin debt was paid on the cross, on the person of Jesus Christ, that means you and I go free. That means, listen to this, the Bible says that there is therefore no condemnation. There is therefore no judgment. For those who are in Christ Jesus. And that truth is demonstrated through the resurrection. Why does, Jesus, why does God resurrect uh, Jesus? To show everybody that what Jesus set out to do. To redeem mankind. And to pay for the sins of those that he would save. Was done and completed in full. So he raises them up to let everybody know. Guess what? It's done. It's finished. He accomplished what he set out to do. Now folks, that's a wonderful thing for us. That's a wonderful thing for many believers, isn't it? Doesn't it just move your heart when you relish in the truth of what he did for us? But let me tell you something. For some of you, you feel like an outsider looking in. You're sitting there and you're saying, and, and, and that's never been a reality to you. Salvation's never been a reality to you. And for, in truth of fact, you've never even seen a need for salvation. Here's why. Because we just naturally all believe it's a part of our blindness and sinfulness. We just kind of all think that we're good people, Right? We're, we're, we're not that bad. I mean, there are a lot of really bad people in this world. I'm not one of them. What I'm going to do is one day I'm going to show up in heaven. God's going to go, hey, you're better than all the rest. And he's going to sit there and say, no, you're wrong. How good do you have to be? He's going to hold up Jesus and he says, here's my son. You have to match his righteousness and his perfection. If you fail to meet his perfection, then you have sinned against me and you will be in hell for all eternity. You got that? See how that works? And so what happens is the Bible says this, all of us are born in sin, all of us have sinned, and because of that, that judgment, we are guilty of that. But here's the wonderful thing. You can experience the joy that I've talked about if you would first identify yourself as a sinner. If you'd be honest with yourself this morning, you would come to the point and you would sit there and say, you know what, I have sinned against God. Hey, you know what, I know that it should have been me on that cross it should not have been him because he was perfect, but it should be me. But I now recognize that he died for my sins because there's no way that I can be reconciled unto God unless I repent of my sin, recognize what it is, desire not to be able to follow in that way anymore, and by faith accept what Jesus Christ did on the cross for me. The Bible says that you do that, and guess what? You get to experience the same joy that many of us have already experienced. So what do we know that we can be confident in? First of all, because we are confident that Jesus rose from the dead, we are confident that our position has changed. Secondly, we are confident that our practice has changed. Now, I want you to understand something, that the biggest lie, like, look, I, I, I say that I am a Southerner. I was, uh, I'm just going to be honest with you, I was originally born in Connecticut, I was born a Yankee, but then my family got saved and we came to the South, all right? 
okay? And I came down, uh, I came down, not by myself because I was one and a half, uh, but when I came down with them, and so all I've known is the South, got right it, right? And so people come up to me and you go, you ain't from around here, are you? No, because I was a little bit further South than you. I was further South in Florida, but I still am a Southerner. That's all I've ever known, right? And because somebody asked me that a- uh, afterwards, and they said, well, you're not a real Southerner because your parents, you weren't, ra- you weren't raised by Southerners. So it's very complicated to me, but here, here's what I wanted to let you know. Being in the South and being what I consider to be a Southerner, there is one lie that I think has done more destruction for we Bible Belt people than anything else, and that is this, is that you can be saved and not transformed, okay? That you can walk an aisle, pray a prayer, that you can ask Jesus in your heart Whatever that is, right? And you can, you can be baptized and you can join the church and then you can just and sign a card, become a member and you can walk away and your life can be completely unchanged. You can be living in sin, living for sin. There, you have the same desires, the same passions, the same lifestyle that you did before you came and got dunked and you made that decision for Christ and you can still be saved. That's the greatest lie in the Bible belt that I know of. As the old preacher says, Jesus Christ did not just come to get you out of hell. He came to get hell out of you. Okay? He came to save you. Here's why. So that not to keep you in your sins, but to transform you into the image and likeness of his son, Jesus Christ. Okay? And so the Bible tells us the reason there must be change, the reason there must be a transformation and a desire for the things of God is because he creates us that way. The Bible teaches us in the word of God and um, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17, it says that we are new creatures in Christ. Old things have gone away. Behold, all things are what? New, which means I'm new. I'm new in Christ, which means he gives me new desires. I want to follow Jesus now, right? You guys remember when you got saved? And, and, and you said, I want to follow him. I want to learn more about him. He saved me. Where did you get that? Did you get that desire because you conjured it up within yourself? No, it was placed there as an act of God's saving grace in your life. When he regenerated you, you sat there before and said, I want nothing to do with Jesus. And now you say, I want everything to do with Jesus. Not because of anything other than he saved you and he changed you. And he not only gave you desire for him and his will and to do his will, but he gave you the ability to be able to do it through the power of the Holy Spirit that now dwells inside of you. So he gave you the desire and he gave you the ability to do it. Now the question is, are any of us perfect? Absolutely not. We stumble and we fall every single day. But here's the deal. I hate it. I can't stand it. I don't sit there and go, hey, look, man, I know I'm saved. I'm going to continue to live in sin and pursue in sin and live this life of sin. And I'm, going to, I'm not going to learn anything about God. It's okay because I know that I pray. And that's a lie, bro. You, lie, you bought into the lie. Jesus, when he came because of his resurrection and because of that resurrection, we know that he came to what? To change us. Not only to change our position, but to change our practice and our way of life. Here's the third thing, and I'll close with this. The third thing is this. He not only came to, not only can we be confident that our position has changed, not only can we be confident that our practice has changed, but we can also be confident that our perspective has changed. You know, when the disciples were left behind and Jesus died, that was it for them. For them in their minds, 
life could not get any worse than that. Um, I don't know if you're like me, but there's been people in my life who have died, who have been close to me. And I just want to let you know, it's like how you think to yourself, how can it get any worse than this? How can it possibly get any worse than this? But Jesus, they had all of their dreams, all of their hopes, all of their lives, all wrapped up in this person of Jesus Christ. When he died, it all died. But what they didn't understand was that through his death, Jesus was actually doing something. He was setting out to accomplish something. What is it that he was setting out to accomplish? Well, the word of God tells us that he was not only uh, gaining victory over, over death and gaining victory over sin, but he was also uh, entering into a reforming and a renewing and a restoring of all of creation. He explained to me and said, you asked me, well, what do you mean by that? When Adam and Eve sinned, catch this, when Adam and Eve sinned, it wasn't just Adam and Eve that fell in sin. It was all of creation that was tainted and marred by sin, everything. Every animal, all, the sky, the mountains, everything was stained with sin. Now, follow me for a second. That means uh, not only everything in this world and us and our relationships, everything was marred with sin, which means that nothing was like it had previously been created to be. Does that make sense? Man was not what it was crea- they were created to be. The world was not how God had originally created it. The relationships that we had with each other, with the world and with God, was not as God had originally intended. It had all fallen. When Jesus Christ comes onto the scene and he dies and he's resurrected, what he's doing is he's saying, hey, listen, I am doing a part in bringing apart or bringing, bringing to us into this world a rebuilding project as, as the world has never seen. I'm going to begin to take everything that is upside down and marred by sin, and I'm going to start the process called the kingdom of God. It's going to begin with me, and I'm going to turn and begin to turn everything right side up. And I'm going to restore everything eventually back to the way it was that God had first intended creation to be. That means all of creation. That means me. That means you. That means all of our relationships. Are you with me? Now, not everything changed at the point of his death. What did immediately change is when people repented and came to faith in Jesus Christ, our relationship with God was immediately transformed and changed and brought back to exactly the way that God had intended when we first got saved. You following me? All right. But other things would take some time. My relationship with my wife, for that to look exactly like God had intended and prepared it in the beginning of time, that takes a little while. You guys with me? Husband and wives, right? It's becoming more like what God desired it to be. It's not there yet, but it's, it's, it's getting there. It's getting there. Then there are some things that wouldn't happen at all until Jesus Christ comes again, again and ushers in a new earth and a new heaven and gives us new bodies. At that point, guess what? We don't have to worry about disease and, and broken necks and all that crazy stuff. That I know some of you are young, Okay, and I know in, in some of your eyes, I'm very young, but I'm just telling you at 40, I'm already looking for the new body, right? You guys with me? Any, no, I'm the only one, all right? I see some of you, you know that, right? Okay, so we're waiting for Jesus to come to restore all that once again to bring it back to the way that he had first intended it ultimately to be. Now, here, here, here's what's interesting to me. When Jesus, when Jesus comes, let me, let, me, let me read this, and you'll see this in Isaiah chapter 11. He speaks of this time. Notice this. He speaks of the time when God turns everything upside down, the kingdom of God. He says, the cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. The cow and the bear lying down together, uh, they're supposed to be eating each other, right? 
or at least the bear to the cow, right? Gnawing on him, killing him. Uh, then he says, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. A lion doesn't eat straw. He eats other animals, right? He's saying, look, all this is going to change. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. Any children looking for cobra holes? Going, uh, you know, for their kids going, hey, come play here. This looks like a safe place. No. He says, in the weaned child shall, shall put his hand in the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, meaning new, new creation, for the earth shall be full of knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Here's the point. When Jesus comes, he tracked them down and he found them in, hidden behind those locked walls. And when he appeared to them, he appeared to them in a new glorified body. And they looked at them and he wanted to draw their attention to something. He says, look, look, touch, put your fingers into the nail scars in my hands. Go ahead, feel, put your hand into my side where that spear went into my side. And as they're sitting there and he's doing this, he's, why does he go through all this? Because he's teaching them something. He says, you guys remember these scars? You remember how bad they were? Do you remember how awful? Do you remember how devastating this was to you? And he goes, I want you to take a look at them, and I want you to take a look at me. And the reason what he's saying is, hey, listen, he's saying, for the believers in Jesus Christ, the best is yet to come. Listen, for you and I, why is it that we're so devastated when somebody that we love dies? Why are we so overwhelmed oftentimes when we begin to think and so fearful when we think about our own death? Why is it as parents that we're so afraid for our children that will stay up at night and we just plead the blood of Jesus and we pray for their protection? Why are we so unbelievably concerned for their physical well-being? Why is it that when a marriage is on rough times, sometimes we feel like nothing worse can possibly happen in that particular situation? Or we lose a job. Or, or we're losing a home, or whatever it is, we look at those times and say, man, it can't possibly get worse. Why do we do that? Here's why we do it, is because we often think that life is all about the here and now, and that this is all there is. And the resurrection reminds us that this is not all there is. There is something greater. There is something more wonderful than here. And so what we find is when Jesus comes and lets him touch the body, he's saying, no matter the pain and the difficulty we face here, there is something far better waiting for us. This truth is what kept the disciples living for Jesus, and it what, it's what keeps us moving and living in hope no matter what we face, that guess what? The best is yet to come. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you and I praise you for this morning. God, I thank you for